So if we practice curiosity, exploration, the phenomena, you know, sati, means you've got a frame of reference that will hold things, keeping the theme in mind. So that has to be sustained patiently, persistently, steadily, intelligently. It's not a blind automatic thing. And then you can begin to read your body, your mental states in a much more informed, informing way. And also you learn how to read. Don't just scan. Wait, take it. Things, some things move slowly and change. And we have to be able to read. Change the metaphor. Uh, you have to be able to handle things carefully. You have to be able to taste things slowly, linger. We tend to be rather hurried and seeking for known answers or quick solutions and actually most of the time things are not conclusive everything's in change and that does lead to a certain opening openness of, of heart and patience is moderates energy so energy becomes more a case of persisting, staying with, than quick fire, blast. Mm. That staying with that persistence gives rise to, you know, as it matures, it gives rise to refreshing rapture. And this is how the enlightenment factors arise. Mm. Rapture. We suddenly feel we're no longer, our energy's right, it's appropriate, it's well-tuned. It's not sagging and it's not pushing. Therefore, there's a certain, and there's a, you know, we've begun to kind of unravel some of the intensities of our experience. Calming, soothing. Basadi. Consolid, letting it, consolidate jitters unifies in itself Let's bear in mind samadhi is not concentration or object concentration object is more associated with mindfulness samadhi is the jitter consolidated in itself if it was steady and comfortable therefore with that there can be the maturation of equanimity. See things things are just this way, the jitter is steady, things are just this way, things are just that way. So these are important um process, you know. It is a process that sort of unfolds and sati always the beginning of it, getting that right, and then this a gentle handling and exploring of phenomena is uh, the way the way forward, the way inward, the way onward. So I'd like to respond to some 
questions this evening. person is somewhat confused by conflicting teachings concerning the cultivation of wholesome states informed by craving them and subsequent attachment when they are developed. But I think the Buddha taught that we ought to cultivate wholesome states. But I've also received teachings say not to crave them and be attached to them. If one does not desire wholesome states, how will one even be motivated to develop them? Also, wouldn't attachment to them with the understanding that they cannot last still be a good thing? Yes, I think you're correct. I would agree with you. Um, I I don't know where this other idea came from, but uh, it's partly maybe due to the, the word desire, which can either appear as a translation of tanha, which is more literally thirst, and uh, which is certainly a kind of pathological need to take something in. Uh, it's a reflex. It's not something you can decide, I will decide to be thirsty. It just happens because some need is not being met. The chitta is confused. Therefore, it's it's not it's not found itself therefore it's seeking it's thirsty and it pulls things in and chanda is the other translation the other word for desire and this means much more to do with motivation jitta still hasn't <laughs> found itself completely but it has the faith and you think well i'm going to try and this is much more a sense of motivation than craving you know so it means you're going to do something tanha i want something uh, chanda, I will do something different, and so therefore, one is motivated to the f- cultivation of wholesome states. Partly a language problem, as many of these things are, because that's uh, you know, <laughs> except for the unconditioned, you either have wholesome states or unwholesome states. So, <laughs> what, do you, what would you like? <laughs> so. <laughs> Clearly, you, you, you're interested in cultivating wholesome states. Getting attached to them, well, again, it's what do you mean by attachment? There's this reflex, a mechanism called clinging, upadana, which is just a, almost a blind holding on. And then there's also um, sati, which is staying with something, you know, handling it, staying with it. They're, they're, you know, sati is seen as a positive quality to bear something in mind. You know, and upadana is seen as a negative quality to hold something. What's the difference between bearing something in mind and holding holding on to something? Well, with mindfulness, you're bearing something in mind in a way that you you can reflect on it, you can recollect it, you can your 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 intention is wisdom. With upadana, your intention is quite blind. Um, becoming, want to be something, trying to get things solid, or um, pleasure. Mm. And so with sati, you can let things pass. But even that is, gives rise to insight. And you see, wholesome states need to then be fostered. Yeah. And what is their purpose? Their purpose of wholesome states 
is to take the chitta away from unwholesome states to purify one's actions and also um, um, wholesome states lead to a more wiser accessible state of mind because it's not tangled with regret and defilement so it's something you can then have insight into very difficult to get insight if your mind is clogged and then unwholesome states tend to have these clogging residues to them um, yeah and jitter is distracted agitated compulsive and you can't really see into the nature of it wholesome states like loving kindness are going to open and then you can discern the energies and the forms and the effect on the heart so even if it's transient in some respect you know, the openness that it creates is gives you a way of you know, penetrating the forms of jitta forms that jitta takes and the formations it takes penetrating it into that which is beyond formation this is something one should be motivated towards okay next question is why does the craving to repeat an action that is compulsion feels somatically so much stronger than the initial pull to act the first time well because once you've acted one or two times it becomes an easy path for the mind to run down so it becomes part of one's bhava becoming tendency you know becomes an established pattern uh, it's familiar it's part of me on, on a kind of very fundamental energetic level so these things then they get they get stuck even if you don't really like them and you wish you'd change them it's still because one has been the, the energy has run down that channel for 25 years uh, therefore it's the easy way for it to slide yeah where the first time you had to, well, maybe I'll do this, I don't really know. Sure, is it okay? I think, oh, yeah, then you do it. So it's, you've got to cut the groove. Once you understand that there's, there's an energetic body there, it has an energetic body, if you like, then you, you begin to recognize how, you know, that body gets shaped by karma, by actions, and distorted by actions. And, and then there's these shape the jitta and it goes into that shape immediately or they cut tendencies in the jitta so it narrows it's used to the in that shape narrow-minded right hard-headed right those are shapes there's an energy there that you know but you probably don't even sort of bring it to attention but we all know what that feels like we say broad-minded, narrow-minded, hard-headed, soft-hearted. Uh, what are we talking about? These definitely have energetic shapes to them, driving shapes or expansive shapes. We would have talked about the contracted or the uncontracted. So these forms then become the defaults. Um, and then they have a certain pull to them you know, because it's familiarity, uh, and, and so forth 
This is to do with karma. So karma is, 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 is action, but all kinds of karma. The mental karma is the most powerful, which can mean as much as just habitual thought, engaging in habitual thought. So, you know, it's like, you know, habitual planning mind, habitual fantasy mind, habitual grudging, irritating mind, habitual complaining mind, habitual self-pitying mind, you know. So these then shape the chitta. <laughs> they cut, they, they give it um, a form. Uh, and, and then it, it, it takes over. Uh, now, also bad, but it's good karma. You shape something, the, sh- the form you shape is something that's got some, you know, some beauty to it. And it, and it supports you. You feel you move into that. And you feel it's a nice form, nice shape. Uh, and because of the good karma, the pattern of good karma, so if it's associated with clarity and wisdom, and these are good qualities. Jitta is it's a healthy state. It's like it's open, it's bright, and it allows for allows for your your, your wisdom eye to penetrate it, to look into it. Whereas the compulsive states, the compulsive negative states, have got a kind of closure to them. It's a hard form. And if we get dogmatic, it's a hard form. Yeah, and, the, and it's more difficult to penetrate into it. And it has a certain. These you know, are asava, outflows, leaks, anutsaya, latent tendencies towards things like ill will, craving, and so on. Therefore, you shape the mind, your negative stuff shapes the mind to easily receive and conform to those, those patterns, those habits. Mm. What are the qualitative differences between restraint and resistance? Restraint and resistance. <laughs> restraint somewhere is to do with uh, uh, gathering things, gathering your mind together, so it's not splintering into this, that, and the other, leaking out. Uh, it's like a harnessing, so it's uh, mind's energies are not splattered all over the place, running out. Resistance. Mm, I don't really see how it's not the same thing, is it? Really? Resistance is you try to repel something. Restraint is much more collecting the heart, so it's more focused on the heart. Resistance is you focused on the object. Like defense and protection. Protection is is love centered, and you look something beautiful. Defense is fear centered. Something out there horrible. Which way do you look? In a way, they're both true. <laughs> but you look to protect because that brings love energy in. Defense brings fear energy, hostility energy. And so you want to be aware of what. These are not just verbal things. These are definite shifts of, of um, uh, 
what the what the jitter is doing. So if someone mentions good suffering and bad suffering, <laughs> and suffering leading to liberation and insight, and bad suffering doesn't. Well, it depends if there's why if it's you know suffering that comes through revealing un, unpleasant realities or unpleasant <laughs> unpleasant truths that are buried. It's not, it's not very comfortable. And even the disorientation that can occur when you, you know, some of your compulsions are checked. You've been going that way so long, and now you stop doing it, and there's a certain, like, um, hangover, or, uh, you know, it takes a while to, cold turkey kind of thing. (laughs) So that's that's suffering there. But, you know, there's a wise purpose behind that. And okay, we'll just, this has to be just weathered through. Person started to focus on body yoga qigong, which helped to release negative energy, as if stored from from a past, when I was living a life of indulgence and would suppress any negative emotion. Is that known to happen? Yes. I think I've just touched on this really, the way that the body uh, is the the base or the body's energies are a base for the citta so what citta experiences negativity these energies, citta energies then do transfer to the body, somatic and that can actually affect the tissues Um, there's no real separation between materiality and, and, and energy they're just gradations on the same scale on, on the you know. talking about that person is experiencing some relaxation through this retreat most of the time we're not so relaxed can awareness remain bright and available when it seems as though the nervous system due to decades of conditioning hijacks awareness and the latent tendencies appear so speedily how can awareness become stronger when relaxation is not available Um, and the latent tendencies are so readily knocking at the door well if you don't take the medicine it doesn't work (laughs) so no, relaxation is an imperative uh, if that's if that's what works uh, but then you know uh, knowing how, how you can relax there's a certain relaxation of disposition whereby we're no longer expecting um, great results <laughs> so you're no longer so kind of tensed up about getting everything right on time, pleasing everybody, making it tidied up, everything you begin to see. Through, your awareness will, should help you to see these these strategies are are um, uh, they're the, what the world does induce in us, but they are they're not wholesome. They can be extremely destructive, even though the material world looks quite good when you. When you run after it and polish it and make it things like, but you, you end up being a wreck. <laughs> so, 
when it sees that, you think you just better, you know, relax your attitudes, relax your attitudes, relax your attitudes. You're much more liable to just, okay, we'll just do this as best I can. And you won't be stressing. But you've got to do the practice. So this person also appreciating slowing down of body movements as they go through the day. Where my tendency is to go back to a fast-paced, get-things-done mode. So Qigong's helping me. You mentioned the 70% rule. Would you please elaborate a bit more on that and its application into right livelihood? Yeah, I think I've... This person's got it, they've got it. Um, because there's the receptivity. When we, when we only think, you know, our lives and our minds are about action, getting things done, well, this is a gross misrepresentation of the, of the mind, you know, of the heart-mind, our centre, because there's receptivity. Uh, you know, and those have to be balanced. If you're not receptive, you don't learn anything at all. And also, at a certain point, if you're not receptive, you don't process anything. You, know, you don't really taste and learn anything, deeply learn anything. And also, you pick up the wrong stuff because you, you weren't, you don't really, your, your sensitivity gets impaired. So you don't, you, you kind of jump, jump the gun all the time run around making problems. Uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, when there's no time, you must go slowly. When you think, oh, I've got no time, I've got no time, there's no time, then it's time to go slowly. Because they, oh, what's time? Where's that? Time is the pressure in your nervous system. If you take the pressure off, time changes. Mm. Uh, and uh, this is uh, crucial to come out of that bondage uh, and the effects of it. We can become heedless if we don't do what it takes to open the receptive aspect. And that can be extremely um, dangerous. person had an opening in the heart centre. The block that existed for years appears to be no longer there. They thought it might close again in a few days, but the central channel is still open. You can feel the energetic pulse flowing. A full abdominal breath is naturally accessible. My jitta has a flow of qualities, especially joy and care. Do you have any suggestions how to care for this? Practice Brahma-Vihara, Samadhi, or just abide in the unfolding. Yes, that's about it. Oh, they, I delight in your, your opening. <laughs> uh, it's lovely to hear. Uh, it's almost an energetic recalibration of my chitta. Well, do stay with it. Now, it's, it's just a metaphor or analogy but just imagine like a jitter is like an infant like an infant like a baby and you've got to look after it because it can it can wander into some terrible places 
really. But if you care for it and sustain it and don't ever drop it and forget it, even if it whines and cries sometimes, then it will, it will grow strong and it will, nothing can do you so much good. Nothing can do you so much good as a well-trained chitta. Absolutely nothing. But it's, it takes years to, to, you know, to, to cultivate it and, and look after it. So whenever it's good, one should delight in it, experience mudita. And also look at some of the causes and conditions that allow that opening to occur. You know, if you can find that, if you can explore what, what was there, what was blocked, what moved, maybe you don't really know. Uh, because it's not, oh, I want to do it again, like some kind of trick. But you might recognize, oh, what was being held on to? You know, how was that? Well, you know, that was all just the illusion, holding on to illusion. Holding on can only ever hold on to illusions. That's the nature of Upadana. It doesn't hold anything real, only illusions. That's why it has to keep holding tight, because if you ever let opened up a bit, you'd see it as an illusion. And that's exactly what happens. Once you see it as an illusion, it can't be held, because it's, there's nothing there, really. This opening, then, is, a, is a, one of the you know, terms we can use for that moment when the Upadana, which is not a conscious decision, remember, this is, this is like a mechanism. It suddenly springs open for some reason, it drops. And you can do that without really even, sometimes just by, in your body, by a Dhamma in the body. And so these pieces of body work do encourage, you have to get in there and feel the textures and the energies and be with that and be patient with it and incline into it and, and handle it. And that can cause openings. But do bring it into into your mind. Well, how has it changed your mind, your heart? And then that's where you really do the deep learning. What happens to jitter when there's been trauma? Is it possible for the jitter to recover? Um, well, trauma is like, as I was saying in the earlier question, jitter you know, takes shape, gets scarred, gets cut, gets crippled, you know. We imagine it to be like a body, which is us keep saying this. <laughs> uh, then trauma is like a lock, like a spasm. Something's locked up. Uh, so it's got kind of like a locked muscle or trapped nerve. So that's what happens. And then around that, generally, there's a kind of like a defense. It means we don't. Our attention doesn't go there because that's so painful, and because within that there's the the emotional qualities that the trauma contains, and we fear things like that violation. Uh, to be very careful, um, but again, if there is a recovery, it's through through body processes and perhaps care from other people mixed together to encourage the, one's attention and awareness to be of a suitable strength and clarity and 
patience to you know move into those areas and see what's there such a thing as collective karma well karma is action so yeah we we do act as a as an entity and we start to learn or well, this isn't necessarily an intelligent process we get we get a collective form a collective patterning um, so in particular so, you know societies we get entrained into a particular collective pattern of this is what life is about um, and nowadays it's mostly work we believe in it that is human beings work um, for a living um, and if we took that idea you know back a few thousand years you know, you, know, you hunt or you grow some crops but when there's a need you've got this work thing you know turn up at eight o'clock every morning no matter what and get the job done <laughs> so so that there's the collective car we've all we've tended to adopt that as a fact it's really just the collective action that we've all believe in nations we believe in nations we believe in uh, we're trained in those ways and productivity progress is another one we've taken on and progress is is <laughs> mixed blessing because you know balance is probably more useful as a, as a, as a term because our progress tends to mean everything else declines as we gobble up the rest of the planet calling it progress you know so these, these are collective actions and then there's collective actions like what we're doing now you know so how many hundred people is just sitting meditating looking to their habits shifting their habits examining what their attitudes are getting coming to terms with aging sickness death feeding their bodies generating goodwill i mean this is powerful karma too there's a collective quality to that and it's always always present we're not just the only people this is present this is massive present uh, karma for the good and there's also old karma which is what we inherit and so you know uh, so that's all all there and you know there's also the fact that any individual may be receiving the results of things they didn't do but they just happen to be part of the tribe (laughs) either through one's own volition or through the volition of others one's experience is an unwholesome bodily formation so this is one or an unwholesome mental formation so for example either not through one's own actions one gets um, you know uh, unhealthful habit or unskillful ways of doing things or other people kind of get you into it induct you into it you, you participate in it knowingly or not you still get the results so it's important to just be aware of action 
and what you're buying into, uh, you know, consumer action, the action of consuming things all the time, which is really a prevalent notion. We've got to keep having consuming new stuff. And (laughs) where is it where it's come from? The earth, doesn't it? So how much more new stuff is there left? And yet, still, it's great to buy something. You know, go a special Christmas, buy more. Thanksgiving, buy more. Black Friday, buy more. Black Tuesday, buy more. Green Wednesday, buy more. <laughs> they create these kind of things to encourage consumerism. They think, oh yeah, great, get some new new gear, new stuff, new shiny, new this, that and the other. <laughs> you know, that's collective karma. And if one can say, well, no. What about, don't buy anything for a week, <laughs> unless just sheer food survival, you know, and then you, you can stand outside the, the herd, as it were. So a person still says their memories, bad memories, unskillful behaviours, done to me or done by me, sending meta seems obvious, yet the memories still haunt. Well, memory is the um, the word, and there's also such a thing as somatic memory, uh, and so what I've been suggesting in several ways in this session, you're going to go into those, this isn't necessarily a muscle twinge by any means, it's a, it's a kind of feeling of like a compressing or a shivering or a stirring or an agitation. So a lot of these somatic effects are not necessarily that intense they're more like uh, you know the vitality goes the, the brightness goes it was like dulled it's a dull flush or a shakiness or a wincing kind of retracting stirred and so just to feel those effects so let's put aside the actual topic and go to the effect and Try to spread your awareness over that effect. That stirred state, however it feels for you, even visualize it. And then see if you can, while you're in that state, just increase your attention to anything you can call your body, presence, and extend through the entire form. And then you've opened that web where the the jitta sits. And then you know, forgiveness, compassion, what seems appropriate, maybe compassion. You know, compassion is when we meet the hurt. And we no longer wince or run away from it. Someone else, how do you keep your heart open? When someone has the intent of harming you, well, you don't open your heart to the person 
is harming you, you open your heart to the Dhamma, to um, forces of goodness, you open your heart to your virtues. You open your heart to understanding that uh, you know to not not take on fear. There's a difference between alertness and fear. Fear is a corrosive uh, diminution of awareness because we don't want to be aware. Alertness is an increased awareness. open to your value open to your qualities ask them to protect you This kind of language, you see, you probably can recognise, it's always like asking God, the angels, the spirits, cosmology, cosmology. And it's often the case that at a certain point in Chitta, you know, the language starts to get pretty much like that, you know, asking for the great power to come down and save my soul. And that's because that's the way people... That's the way people, that's the language people use to describe this experience. But you don't have to use that language. That language makes you feel you're uncomfortable. But there is a sense of, you know, the person, the person is a form, set of forms that arise within the chitta. It's all the habitual um, processes and characteristics taken on in this lifetime, they've been built up in this lifetime. You know, my habits, my language, my voice tone, my gestures, my ways of doing things, my me- well that's me, you know. That's that's but that's a set of constructions that's developed over time. And it's a it's a condition process and everybody has one. Um, but it's it's really inadequate <laughs> in the bigger scheme of things, because as we all know, it cracks up, it, it passes away, just like any other form. You know, it tends to get rather, uh, lose vitality, and then, you know, mortality, and it knows it's death. It's frightened of its death. It's frightened of losing what it loves. It searches for security. It seeks comfort. And, uh, that's a conditioned form that we carry uh, and everyone carries that yeah. and it's the place, it's the interface between the chitta and the world is the person it develops as a kind of way of moderating these movements of heart and emotion and with the world So naturally it's very attuned to what the world will do to it. 
because that's what produced it. Therefore, it's pretty much, there's a degree of anxiety in it most of the time. Because it's, what do people think of me? Am I doing okay? Will I be, yeah. And then, of course, you know, it's associated with the body, physical body, the outer body, the anatomy, which is it can be a target. So these two, it's called Sakaya Ditti, the view of this uh, person and a personal body with all these personal shapes to it, which is very fragile and uh, is, a, is a target. So it's a, it's a basis of degree of fear and anxiety and insecurity. And the whole more you're completely bonded to that, then however hard one holds it, to be a great person and fantastic and top of the world and rich and wealthy and secure and everybody loves me and all that sort of stuff, uh, you know, it's still insecure. That's to hold on hard. And uh, when you get extreme narcissists, I think you've probably realised there's been a rather uh, extreme case of that uh, in the United States uh, for the last few years. Uh, but he's not the, not the only one. And they're very fragile, really. Anyway, not to digress too far, but realising that is not going to save you. You've got to move out of that. And this is what this movement... Now, in theistic religions, that's pretty strict. You move to, you know, the saviors or the angels to come and help you. You know, help. But in Buddha Dharma, you know, you move to the enlightenment factors or the indriyas. You know, it's more like psychologies or chitta qualities rather than external. Whether these are external or internal, it becomes irrelevant because these some of the experience can be like. I didn't realise I had that, you know. It's a sense of um, strength and confidence can arise when when chips are down. You know, suddenly you, you, the chitta goes back to itself. Don't trust this person's not going to help me. I'm going to go into myself and bring up, you know, the the wisdom faculty or the resilience or the uh, whatever's needed. Um, so you want to open to that in yourself. I think uh, that's probably enough talking at this time I think you've got some things to to consider, bear in mind so we'll put a pause on it for now and hopefully we can continue this conversation and exploration another time